Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's Wood Talk number 261 for July 24th, 2015, and it's a weekend edition of Wood Talk. And today we're going to talk about one single topic, and this is inspired from an email we got from Anthony. And it's about getting paid for your work, but being fair to both parties, being fair to yourself and being fair to your uh, quote-unquote client. So Anthony says, I have a question regarding the monetary value we place on craftsmanship today as opposed to that of earlier generations. Example, George Washington paid $145 for an ornate secretary bookcase, Mount Vernon Virtual Tour, in 1797. Aside from the obvious historical value, if simply adjusted for inflation, the same item would cost roughly $3,800 today. I guess he used a a tool at measuringworth.com to uh, get that number. Not an outrageous sum, but in all honesty, I doubt it would be replicated for five times that amount today. I would appear, or it would appear, that this kind of hand-built quality has become more out of reach than ever before. How do we put a price on the the pieces we build that justifies the labor and the material, uh, but also makes them accessible to those who appreciate what we do? Uh, he says, Mark, how much for that sculpted rocker? So this is one million dollars. <laughs> hmm, what well, are you offering? Yeah. What are, you, what are you thinking here, buddy? We can work something out. Uh, to answer your question, maybe we'll lead off with that because that's you know a compelling thing. You put months worth of work into a particular build. Now, we're in a fortunate situation that we don't necessarily have to, and I say we as in the three of us, we don't necessarily have to build things purely for profit. We can build what we want to build and we can profit through the the actual education aspects of building that thing. So I can spend a couple months on it and not have to worry about selling it. Now, if I were to sell it, and I think I may have said this on the show uh, when the rocker was completed, that I would not be able to sell that chair and feel good about it for less than $10,000. Now that sounds, that sounds ridiculous. Like to most people, 10 grand for a chair, especially if you're going to get a rocker from someone who just built their first one. But I'm telling you what I would not feel comfortable with. And because of the amount of labor that I put into it, the amount of time and effort and the quality that I know I ended up with, I just couldn't let it go for that much. And I'm not saying someone is ever going to buy it at that price. I'm just saying that I would not feel like I did the right thing by getting rid of it for less than that. Now, over time, if I improved my process and made it a little bit faster, I could become a little more competitive and price it around where other people who build these things all the time are pricing their chairs. Um, so it's, but, mm-hmm. but my example with that one chair, and this gets to his point of that handcrafted effort that you put into stuff, I would have to charge 10 grand. And that is why it's not for sale <laughs> because <laughs> ain't nobody going to buy it is what it comes down to. Or, or is it the, the market that you're in now? Of course you've had, we've talked before about, you have a very specific client who is a favorite client of yours for a very mm-hmm. specific reason when it comes to realizing the value of the furniture pieces that you're building, the materials that you're using, all of these things. So there really is something also to be said about where you're selling it, who you're selling it to. Yeah. Uh, I think that would definitely, in that case, if I had a client like that and they could understand these things and appreciate what I was doing and um, more or less that they did see the value in there, I would have no problem in throwing that number out there. But yeah, for but other situations, though, would be like one of those things would be like, um, cost? <laughs> <laughs> well, have, have well you- and, and, you know, to use that Maloof rocker, obviously Maloof rockers made by, well, made by Sam, good Lord, since he passed away, who knows what they're made for, yeah. you know, for worth now, but you know, I I have heard that they got into the 250 275 while he was still alive and making them. 
275,000 that is, mm-hmm. um, because you've got a brand associated with that. Um, today when the Maloof shop makes one, I don't know what they're charged for it, but I know for, um, like Charles Brock, when he sold that chair to Martha Stewart's brother, pretty sure it was more than 10 grand. (laughs) So, you know, there is a market that exists. There's a market that exists for any piece of furniture that you can, you could sell it. I think you could sell your, your chair for 10 grand because it was made by the wood whisperer. There might be some crazy person. Cheap woodworker. (laughs) So probably not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I I have the right audience. It's all those ancillary kind of regional historical type things. I mean, he does say, obviously, you know, the historical value of this piece of furniture that George Washington had commissioned is through the roof. But back in the 18th century, you know, was wooden furniture a novel idea? All wooden furniture was made by hand. All wooden furniture was made with a level of craftsmanship because it's just a byproduct of how it was made. Today, furniture has much less value. People don't think of it the same way because we have these, you know, manufacturing processes that have improved over the years, making it less and less valuable. There's all this competition that's driving prices down. We have outsourced manufacturing, overseas manufacturing, all that stuff that, you know, I look at a a website like measuringworth.com and I just, it's taking into account inflation. How could it possibly take into account all of those other things, the social, um, political things that have changed the value of a particular product. Yeah. And and that's where we are today. Our product, furniture, does not hold a high value. Um, but well, you, it's very labor-intensive to make. And well, you know, really uh, we could maybe even take that out a little bit further and, and kind of, of run a little bit and not to make this a political statement or anything else because I know some people will read into this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tread a very fine – I'm going to tr- walk a very fine line here to keep myself Do from it, getting man. in too much trouble with this. Do it. But there is something to be said about maybe that time period and when it came to an expectation of profit because most business people now uh, – and rightly so – should be expecting a a certain amount of profit back for their their work. I mean, it only makes sense. That's why you go into business. But at a certain time period here, it, it was one of those things like the the woodworker or the, the craftsman uh, was building basically to stay alive. That they were bringing the money in. The the overhead was probably a little bit lower. The expectation of profit was much lower. Where today it's almost like uh, when I build something, I expect to have a huge amount of profit if this is my professional living. So there is something to be said about that mindset of well, the heck, economics our, and everything our else. Overhead, right now. Our overhead alone. Forget about inflation just the cost to live today because we're not self-sufficient people. You know, we we don't all have gardens and growing food and built our own houses. And, you know, we all have mortgages. We most, a lot of us have car payments. We have health insurance, all this stuff that didn't exist just to survive back then. So yeah, you're right, Matt, you know, Hey, if I made $20 off of this, I'm psyched because back in the 18th century, you could live on 20 bucks for a long time. So, I, you know, those are the other things that don't really factor into this. So, well, you know, you guys it's probably, funny. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You can go. No, you go. No, you go. Okay. Well, what I was going to say was uh, about the same time is th- this is in the last show I mentioned that I had finished up a project that I was working with a client and I, I wrestled with the whole throwing the price out there and then them coming back and going, sure. And then me thinking, oh, I, I, I set a too low of a price or something. I even regardless, I still felt really guilty about it, but I it was totally worth what I was asking them to make. Samantha and I had a conversation about like if I were to leave the day job, you know, total pipe dream at the moment and, and to do this, like what would I have to charge for a typical 
project like this? Like, would I charge more for the project that I built for these people? Would I charge less? Uh, you know, how, how would we do this? And that was one of those things. Is then it got into the whole idea, of, like you said, Shannon, of, of overhead. How much is it going to cost me to do this? Because if I were to become a professional, I couldn't do it in my basement anymore, probably because of zoning issues. And quite honestly, the shop would just be too small to actually be doing something professional. So yeah, then I have to really look at the pricing and just ask myself, well, how much more do I need to, how am I going to price this mm-hmm. so that I can actually survive <laughs> regardless right. of profit? Well, I think, Shannon, you pointed out such a great point that's a little depressing to think about is is the fact that the way things are structured these days people don't marry their furniture you no, know like no. a, how many bedroom sets have you know you guys had since you were kids uh, or uh, since since mate let's nope. see let's just say since you got married um to be fair um you know we've had a couple we've had a couple yep. different dining room tables we've had a couple different coffee tables entertainment centers these things change out over time uh, so we don't value it the way it the the like the amount of work that gets put into it. I don't know that there is a middle ground for the average consumer to say it's worth it. Uh, you right. have you have to convince them that the thing is worth paying that much for when they could just go buy something. Like I think about my neighbors here, um, and they're all nice people. They all have good jobs. They all have you know um, the, they could probably afford to buy really good furniture. But if they can just go to whatever local furniture store and get something, spend you know a couple hundred bucks on a little table or something like that, and they feel good about it and it looks good, they're done. You know, right. they they don't need to have that. Oh well, this was made by so and so and has. Uh, do you know what a mortise and tenon is? I do. It's you know what I mean. Like they <laughs> well, don't give and it a is crap. That, it is that disparity in the manufacturing process that exists today that didn't exist back then. You know, yes, there were peacemakers in the 18th century where a guy just made that same little piece and was paid by that piece. But even the biggest shops generally, you know, there was that that one piece of furniture was made from start to finish in that shop. And then you go out into the country and it's just like we are, that one guy in his shop making that piece of furniture. Well, today you can do it that way and it costs you a lot. Or you can go to a manufacturing plant that's fully automated that has CNC machines that can churn out furniture. Um, So – it can be. It could still be really high quality furniture. I mean, there are there is nice furniture out there that's made that way. Yeah. I have a lot of clients who make beautiful furniture, and it's all done with CNC. Um, but their price point is still dramatically lower than what it would be if you know a fine craftsman making it from soup to nuts in his shop. So the fact that those two prices exist in parallel tells you that there's just no way. I mean, you have to understand what a mortise and tenon is. You have to understand what makes a well, uh, a fine piece of furniture. You have to have the disposable income to want to pay that because it's got that handcrafted look. Most of us don't have that disposable income. And the fact that there is, there's this price point over there, $145 for this piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, why would I pay 3,800 for it? That didn't exist back then. It was all made the same way. Yeah. You know, this kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, a book I was reading over the 4th of July. It was about mid-century modern furniture, and I was looking at uh, the history leading up to some of the, the key players in the whole uh, movement, the mid-century modern – or what we refer to as the mid-century modern movement. And they talked about how like in the days after World War II, uh, especially in Great Britain, there was like – it used to be the way that you bought furniture was you bought a whole set. You got you you outfitted a particular room and it had everything in there. So you bought everything together. You bought the table, the buffet, and the chairs. All of them came together. So when you purchased furniture, 
you had to make a big investment in it. And so there was you, – you bought all this stuff together. But then as the – after World War II, uh, when the mid-century modern movement was starting to go a little bit more, there was other issues that play into this too. But what came out of it that was really unique was that you finally had pieces where you could buy a chair. You could buy a table and have things mix and match. So that, in my mind, kind of like started to create this whole idea of – Furniture doesn't necessarily have to last. You can just wait till the next season comes out and you don't have to buy everything. You can just get a chair because I no longer like that chair I got two years ago. So you can <laughs> right. get rid of that thing. Right. You know, and so maybe that's one of those things that started to play into this idea that furniture, to some degree, for the lack of a better description, was disposable. Do you think well, the current sort of artisan movement that's going on, and I, th- I see most of it in like foods is a good place where you see people paying a lot more for things. That Farm were, to table. Yeah. Oh, made yes. locally. Where does that become? There's yeah. a, I mean, it's a huge industry now. So do you, and, and maybe it'd be interesting to talk to folks who actually do crafts shows and try to sell goods at these things to get a, a vibe for how that is impacting furniture. Because you would imagine the same sort of awareness of, you know what, if I've got a, you know the spare money to do this, I'd much rather pay a local craftsperson to build me this custom piece of furniture than to go out to the store and just buy one of you know what they made a few thousand of in the last few months. So I wonder if the artisan movement is having a positive impact on, on our industry as furniture builders. I wonder I if it does. It does. Um, when I look at my own clients um, at the lumber yard and I look at what they're buying and what they're making, I think it has a huge impact. The fact of the matter is, is the market that would buy custom furniture is still very, very small. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's not that difficult to make an effect on a very, very small number to begin with. There's still the masses out there that would never even be able to afford, you know, a thousand dollars or something for a piece of furniture, let alone five thousand for a piece of furniture. That's probably not going to change. But the people who you would should be talking to in the first place, they are absolutely influenced by this, yeah. I think. Right. Well, you know, that's one thing I think is kind of funny is uh, uh, with the group that uh, we tend to hang out with, that uh, Sam and I tend to hang out with, there is a lot of artists in there and a lot of um, uh, artists of all kinds. We have a few extra furniture maker friends or a, a couple of them and designers and everything else. And it. It's not that long ago when you used to say – I used to say, you know, I like to build custom furniture and they'd give you that look like, what do you mean by custom furniture? What, what, is that a style? What is that exactly? Right. And, and now it seems like with more of this artisan movement, you are starting to see people that are understanding this. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to purchase it, but they're starting to understand that this exists and that just because you see something in a catalog or at a showroom of some big uh, national store or something, that doesn't mean that that's the only thing available, that you can actually get other things made unique for your 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 life, for your, for your house, for whatever it is that you're trying to outfit. So I've seen that at least in the fact that I no longer get twi- nearly as many blank stares as I used to when I would say something like that. You have to call yourself a maker so they understand what you're yeah, talking about. Right. Yes, that's the other one. <laughs> Put a hashtag in front of it. Otherwise, it. they don't get it. Well, yeah. the other thing to think about, historically, furniture was always late to the party. When the styles changed, furniture changed like 20 years after. It's because it's heavy. So look at textiles, <laughs> look at jewelry, look at silver. Um, Queen Anne style tea sets you know, were a good 20 years before Queen Anne furniture came into vote. Yeah. Furniture was always far down the line because, frankly, furniture is more of a commodity than, you know, that fine silver tea set or that dress that, you know, the, the, the lady of the house was wearing or jewelry. So now look at it today. Jewelry, artisan jewelry has been around a long time and it's mm-hmm. quite successful. 
look at Etsy, you know, in places like that, that's what they're making. That's what they're selling. Um, so maybe furniture is just now starting to, to, to catch that wave, if you will, because it's always been last. I'd be so interested maybe. to hear the the perspective of people like, uh, what's his name? Um, Dan Mosheim. I've mm-hmm. interviewed him a long time ago. Guy in Vermont. That's a custom Vermont. furniture maker, super talented. Um, but folks who were doing it before, and then are continuing through all of this. I wonder, especially if, folks that were working during the studio furniture movement and like the, yeah. like, uh, cause I've talked to Royal Underhill about this, like mm-hmm. the, the whole earth catalog period, the hippie period, um, uh, where there was a lot of what we see today is now like anti-corporate, you know, support the local guy buy American corporations are evil. That, <laughs> that thing that's going on now was happening back in the sixties and seventies too. Yeah. yeah. Have you guys ever had a situation where you were requested to build something from someone, friend, family, stranger, whatever, and they totally balked at the price? Oh, Oh, yes. (laughs) And what would like, give me an example. Like, was it just they just were not expecting it to be that expensive or where were their expectations on the pricing scale? I don't know where their head ever was on this, but again, that whole idea that I don't get the blank stares as often about when I mentioned that I I like to build custom furniture, Mm -hmm. uh, but somehow that, that, idea the name the term custom furniture maker somehow uh, equated to being cheap like oh well right. that means i can get it cheaper through you than say <laughs> like walmart and it's like where did you ever come up with that idea yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make any right. sense but that was uh in fact my first real paying job for some furniture was to make some uh some uh, side tables for uh, a friend that uh, Samantha was working with. It was just four tables and she wanted them made out of ash and she wanted like all these very specific things for it. And so when I priced it, um, I, I probably would laugh at the price I gave her now because it was probably so inexpensive. But I remember her just like she got insulted. She was she thought that I was like just making complete fun of her over the <laughs> price that I gave her. And I remember thinking, no, this price I gave you is barely covering the cost of the materials. I haven't yeah. even put in my time on this. Right. So right. break it down. Let me break it down for you and you can see what we're talking about here. Yeah, exactly. And it was just it was crazy. <laughs> that that's kind of uncanny because that's almost exactly the same as my story. I was building a side table, not four side tables, but I was just building uh, I guess you would call it a shaker side table, really plain Jane vanilla table. And the number I threw was like, I think I would have made 50 bucks over the materials, right. you know, and the, she was so shocked. I was easily three times what she was expecting. What she was expecting to pay would have never covered the price of the lumber. I mean, think about it. The average shaker side table is what, 15 board feet? You know, yeah, so, much. you know, five bucks, six bucks a board foot. Um, and she was just appalled. There was no way <laughs> that she thought it would ever cost that much. So, yeah. You, you know, when I was doing the furniture building full time pre like Wood Whispered uh, days, my favorite jobs were commercial jobs because when I submit the price, there was never the reaction like the sort of look that you get when someone's just like, are you kidding me? That is a ridiculous amount of money. It's always like, well, no, we have, we've got a budget. So we're going to compare this against two or three other bids that we received. And uh, we'll get back to you. And, right. and, the, and you, you could charge what you feel like you're worth and feel good about it. And the person would never give you a reaction. Like you must be crazy. Uh, so I would kind of try to seek those out because those were the most satisfying jobs is to get, um, you know, a bar that needs its tables refinished or, you know, just li- little things like that where it's small businesses, but they tend to be a lot less reactive to the prices than, uh, than individuals, obviously. But 
Well, you know, one thing I found was with with that particular person, it was funny because there was that reaction just like that. She really wanted to reach out and touch me in not a good way. Um, (laughs) But afterwards, once I delivered them to her, uh, I remember it was very shortly afterwards that she came to me and said with like three more pieces that she wanted made. And these were much bigger. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to have to charge you more than what I did before. And this time I am going to throw in a little something for myself because it's taking a little bit longer than I thought I would because this was really early on. Um, and it was in my old shop, which was much smaller. And she didn't balk that time. She's like, no, that's good. That's good. We can totally do that. If you need to charge a little bit more, go for it. And I was, again, then I wanted to like reach out and touch her and be like, are you okay? You running a fever? What the hell's going on here? Well, you know, so, sometimes you convince people. I mean, that's the whole reason I started the, the Wood Whisperer because I was like, look, I got to try to find some way to show people what goes into making this stuff so that yep. if they see exactly how it's made and it was really for that purpose, didn't really work out. Uh, but that was the logic behind it because I wanted to be able to charge what I felt I was worth. And there, that was the best way to do it is to show them, look at the journey this material is going to go on from raw boards to what I deliver to your house. So this is why I'm charging this much money for it. I think that addresses um, Anthony's question too, because his actual question is how do we put a price that justifies a labor and then makes sense? And I think cluing that person in on that journey, but also I think if you commission a custom furniture maker, you know, you get to be maybe kind of part of the design, you know, unless it's something you already, I, you get the typical, here's a photograph. I want that. But if you can involve them, well, do you want this? How big is it going to meet the size? Because then people start to, people get so programmed that they have to accept what, you know, what's there, what's in the catalog. When you start to get them to realize, well, does that actually fit your space? Do you want it a couple inches longer or a couple inches taller? And they start to suddenly realize the possibilities of a custom piece of furniture mm-hmm. and how they can actually make it exactly like they want it and how it might actually be unique. And then, of course, there's the whole, you know, you can show it off later. Yeah, I had a guy make it and it's made specifically for my space. Then the the, the purse strings start to loosen a little bit because All now right. they're they're recognizing the unique nature of what is your building and how they've had a hand in building it. Uh, I'm taken back to the um, Thomas Mosier Furniture Company. They have a plan or a, a product where you actually you pay money for a piece of furniture and then you get to come into the factory and help one of their guys build it. Yeah. Really? Um, and it's not cheap. Um, you know, it's Thomas Mosier Furniture is very well made. It's it's in that kind of somewhat mass produced but still a, obtainable price range. Um, but you can you show up and I think it's a week long thing. It's like a woodworker woodworking class, but it's specifically designed toward non woodworkers. These people are, you know, Joe Schmo and average housewife showing up saying, Oh, I want a hand in the, the production of wow. my piece. And um, I remember reading an article about how much that has informed their their customer base and how like profits have gone up because they've been able to kind of raise prices here and there and no one's balked at it. Jeez. So, well, good for know. them. You know, I'd be inclined to give people a discount to stay the hell out of my shop while I'm building <laughs> their <laughs> furniture. <laughs> I, I've got a couple of friends that they've said that. They're like, you know, hey, you would be a lot of fun. We should build a project together. And I said, you know what would be a lot of fun? No. <laughs> Not doing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anything but that. You know what? I will even buy a six pack and you just sit in the kitchen above me and you can listen to me work on <laughs> it. There you it. go. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully, Anthony, that helps you out a little bit, just kind of batting some ideas around. And if you have some thoughts on this, let us know. It's a very interesting time to be making furniture for people. And I'd be curious to hear if folks have seen an improvement in people's understanding of what really goes into making this stuff possible. 
Um, but I think that just about wraps it up. Uh, Matt, how about you give them the contact info? We'll get out of here. All right. Hey, folks, if you have a comment, a question, or a topic suggestion, there's several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at kickback at woodtalkshow.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. Sweet. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See ya. See ya.